You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit kingscross.org. What we've been doing together over the last several weeks is we're studying the book of, of Nehemiah together. And so if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, that's where we're going to be. It's, um, it's a story of a man and a people who have a burden to see um, the city of God and the temple of God and the people of God restored. That, that's really the heart of the book. 141 years before the events of the book take place, um, a Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, had sacked and destroyed Jerusalem, exiled at least 10,000 of its citizens. They kind of lived in a refugee camp outside the city walls of Babylon. Ninety-three years before the events of this book, the Jews had begun returning to Jerusalem after a decree was issued by the Persian king Cyrus that gave them the legal right to do that. Thirteen years before the events of Nehemiah, Ezra the priest had returned to the city following the rebuilding of the temple to restore the rituals of worship for the people of God. And in this book, as it opens, Nehemiah himself is arriving in Jerusalem. He's under the protection of the Persian king Artaxerxes, and he's serving as something like a governor over the city. And his primary burden and his primary task is to see the walls of the city restored and rebuilt. But he's got a problem. Not everyone is happy that it's happening. In chapter 1, what we see is that Nehemiah has this God-given burden for a people and a place. In chapter 2, we see that Nehemiah is under the protection and the provision of God that is coming to him through the Persian king. Last week in chapter 3, we see that Nehemiah not only has the skill set for the work, but he has the leadership ability to rally the people together to get to pursue the work and to get it done. But in chapters 4, 5, and 6, what we're going to see is opposition. And those three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, um, are kind of the, the detailed zoom in of the summary of chapter 3. And so chapter 3, Nehemiah kind of gives you almost a report of the, the crews of people who were working on the wall. And he says, you know, and it was done. That's kind of the, the general summary at the beginning of his paper. And then he gives you three chapters of details of what, it, what did it actually look like on the ground when chapter 3 was happening. And I think sometimes, maybe a lot of times, people are totally caught off guard by opposition. Because he can feel like, well, if, if God has called us to do this, why isn't it easier? And people can get confused by and disoriented by opposition. You think, well, we're doing the right thing here. Why are people angry? But this clearly, this, this is a good thing, and this is the right thing to, to say or to do. Why are people upset? Like, God, why would you help us out here? And there can be sometimes this kind of inherent triumphalist attitude among Christians, especially, I think, among 
modern Western and particularly, just frankly, American Christians where we feel like uh, things should be easy and we should be victorious. And if there's anything that is uh, other than that happening, then something must be very, very wrong because clearly we should just be succeeding in everything that happens. But that's not the testimony of the Bible. The testimony of the Bible from the beginning until almost the very end. The story changes at the end. Uh, spoiler alert if you haven't read it, but it turns out pretty good. Um, the, the story from the beginning until almost the very end is this biblical truth that I have in your sermon notes, if you're somebody who likes to follow along with those, is that the people of God should expect opposition to the work of God. The people of God should expect opposition to the work of God. So this week and next week, we're going to explore that idea. This week, we're going to talk about us, how it is that we, the people of God, and I know not everybody in the room is a Christian yet. If you're not, we're glad that you're here and, and hope um, that, that you're exploring the claims of the Bible and you're asking questions about Jesus and who he said that he was and who the church proclaims that he was. There's no better place for you to do that than here. But this week, we're going to talk about how we, the people of God, can respond to opposition. And then next week, we're going to zoom in on Nehemiah himself and we're going to see how he can serve as something of an example for us, for you as an individual, and how you can lead through opposition. So this week is the collective. How do we respond to opposition? Next week is you. How can you lead through opposition? But this morning, this big idea is that the people of God should expect opposition to the work of God. And so I want to show you where that opposition comes from, and then I want to show you how to respond to it from the text of Nehemiah 4 and part of 5. We're going to start with the sources. From where, or more accurately, from whom should the people of God expect opposition to the work of God to come? First, opposition comes from some who hate us. From some who hate us. Look at Nehemiah 4.1. Now, when Sambalat, he's um, like the chief administrator of a nearby town. When he heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Rhetorical questions that he laughingly assumes the answer is no to. Verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yeah, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, it'll break down their stone wall. And then Nehemiah records a prayer in verse 4, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they're captives. Do not cover their guilt. Do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. 
And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites hated the Jews and the work that they were doing to repair their city and the temple of their God. They despised it. They were angry at it. And look, the reality is that there were people then and there are still people today who hate Christians. You don't have to look very far to find them. Their agendas are clear. Their rhetoric is often loud. Their influence in some parts, not all parts, but in some parts of our culture is growing. But here's the thing. It's always been that way. Always. Like, I'm not sure why Christians are shocked at this. Look at the history of the Jewish people. Look at the history of the church. There have always been some who hate us. This is not new. It's not new to our time. It's not new to our culture. It's not because of who the president is or what movies are popular or what the lyrics of the most popular songs on the radio are. It's because people hate God. And naturally, they hate the people of God. Psalm 2, 1 to 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So don't freak out when opposition to the work of the Lord comes. Expect it. Because there are some who hate God and hate the people of God and hate the work of God. And though it is not explicit in this text, and therefore it's not in your notes, what I would say is that includes spiritual warfare. Because nobody hates the work of God and the people of God. Nobody hates, if you're a Christian, nobody hates you and your family and this church and the work of the gospel more than Satan. He's already been defeated by it. And he rages like the nations in Psalm 2 against it. And he plots in vain against the Lord's anointed. Don't be shocked by that. It's just always been that way. And until the Lord returns or calls us home, it always will be that way. Second, opposition comes also from some who love us. From some who love us. Verses 10 through 12. says, in Judah, that's among the Jewish people. It was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. Ten times they come to Nehemiah and to those who are rebuilding the wall, and they say, you've got to stop this. 
This is too hard. This is wearing you down, and it is about to get deadly. Literally, your lives are on the line. We are going to die. Not all opposition to the work of God looks like hate. Sometimes it comes from a place of love. Sometimes the people who love you are just scared for you. Or they have concerns for you. And they think, well, like, what do you mean you're praying about going to the mission field? What, do you know what happens to people on the mission field? What, what do you mean that you're thinking about going and serving in that ministry? Do you know what that's going to do to your life? Hey, I know you love the Lord, but if you keep talking about faith in your profile, nobody's going to match with you. You, you keep talking about Jesus like this all the time up front. You're going to be single the rest of your life. you you got to cool it with the God stuff, man. When we planted King's Cross, we planted the church in 2016. When we planted the church, I had really smart, really successful people who loved me and loved our vision and loved the work of the church. But they said, you cannot go to Clements Ferry. You're 10 years too early. That is not going to work. It, it, now is not the time for that. The, the Point Hope, there was, not, there was literally nothing. No apartments, just the schools. No publics. Like, you're too early. And it was coming from a place of love. that They were concerned for us. It wasn't because they were against us. It was because they loved us and they wanted us to take an easier path. But we felt like, well, actually what God has showed us is this path to establish a gospel work in this part of the city, ahead of the growth, so that when the growth comes, we can shape this part of the city with the gospel rather than respond to it after there are too many people. And, and we haven't been an overnight success, right? Nobody's writing articles about King's Cross and the unbelievable growth that's happened here. And so maybe some of those people look at us and say, see, I told you, it's too hard, it's too early. But God's at work here. Yes, as I stand up here and watch people pull chairs out of the back, right? As some of you are frustrated because you feel like, I don't want to sit that far down front. I just want to kind of, like at some point between now and probably the end of the school year, we're going to have to go to two services. That's going to happen. At some point in the next three to five years, we're probably going to have to start talking about building a new sanctuary some way this direction, right? Those things are happening because God is at work here, Yes? So here's my point in that. My point is not to take a, a, a side trail and talk about King's Cross. My point in that is that if you commit yourself to loving the Lord and following the Lord and obeying the Lord and doing what you feel like the Lord's calling you to do, there will be some people who out of love and concern for you will be opposed to that. Or, or they will want to caution you strongly against that because they won't see what you see. They may not believe what we believe yet, and that's okay. Because sometimes opposition comes from those who love us. Third, we should expect opposition to come from some who use us. Some who hate us, some who love us, and some who use us. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. 
Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So now they're not talking about Sambalat and Tobiah. They're, they're talking in-house. What happens if you read down through verses 2 through 5, it describes the source of this great outcry. Evidently, at the same time they're rebuilding the wall, there's a famine going on. And what's happening is that there are some people among the Jewish population who see an economic opportunity and they begin to exploit the market conditions for their own good. And the result of that is what happens is more people are borrowing money at exorbitant rates. More people begin selling themselves into slavery to repay that debt. Some of them even had begun to have to sell their children into slavery to repay debt that they took out to buy food. Verses 6 through 9. I was very angry. When I heard their outcry in these words, and I took counsel with myself, and I, which is just a great phrase. <laughs> I, took, I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, this is Nehemiah talking, you are exacting interest, each from his own brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we're able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you were doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God and to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Hear me. There are some who will use spirituality for their own gain. They will leverage spiritual moments, spiritual ideas and words and phrases, spiritual identities for their own good. And that is true regardless of the setting. That is true for politicians and for artists and for salesmen and for advertisers and much to their eternal shame, yes, even some pastors. Greed and self-interest and impure motives and sin exist among the people of God. We are not immune to this. Do not be naive. Do not assume that because someone attends church or because they post a Bible verse on Instagram or because they attend a prayer breakfast in Congress that somehow that means they're pure-hearted and gospel-centered. They might just be saying and doing and posting and attending those things to leverage a moment for their own good. Doesn't mean it's real. And sometimes opposition to the work of God comes from those who see leveraging spiritual things as a strategic way to use the people of God to advance their own agenda. That was true 2,500 years ago, and it is true today. Sometimes opposition will come from people who are just using the people of God. Fourth. Sometimes opposition comes from some who are us. Verse 10. Nehemiah is still speaking. 
He's just shredded these leaders who have decided to leverage the moment to enrich themselves off people's hunger. And now he turns the table on himself in verse 10. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Nehemiah recognizes that he has been part of the problem. Now, he hasn't been in town long enough to have caused all of these larger problems of bond servanthood and food shortages. But evidently, when he showed up into town, he just kind of stepped into the stream of water that was flowing. And because he had all these resources from King Artaxerxes, he just kind of jumped in line and he started lending things to people too because, hey man, that's just what everybody was doing. Every now and then, a leader with good intentions makes a mistake. And that's what Nehemiah's done, and he recognizes it. And in verse 11, he says, you know what? The solution's going to start with me. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to forgive all of the debt to everybody that I've loaned to. And my expectation is that you'll do the same. So he, he leads by example. Every now and then, someone within the Christian community realizes that they've drifted to a place where they've begun treating the people of God and the church of God in a way that's just not godly. I don't think Nehemiah had bad intentions. It just happened. And it still happens. This is going to happen. So expect it. Expect that sometimes setbacks and course corrections and mistakes are going to come. And it is going to feel so defeating when it comes from people who are with you, who are part of us. And it's going to feel like, man, it's hard enough that we got people out there causing problems. Now we got to deal with it in here. Like, do you know how hard it is to try to convince people out there that what we're doing is good? Now we got to have these conversations in here. Like, man, you're in the boat with us. Why are you rowing in the opposite direction? That sometimes is the hardest opposition to deal with. It's when it comes from us. And you think, like, this is just exhausting. Sometimes that happens because sometimes the opposition comes from us. And so the question is not, will we run into opposition? The answer to that is yes, you will. So just expect it. It's been happening to the people of God since there was a people of God. The real question is, how do we respond when the opposition comes? That's the the real question. And I see four ways in the passage. Let me show them to you. First, we respond by being prayerful. By being prayerful. We've already talked about this. Maybe it's in chapter 1, but did you notice, I wonder as we read, that Nehemiah's description of this opposition was saturated with description of prayers. So in verses 4 and 5, he says, 
Hear, O our God, for we are despised. In verse 9, he says, and we pray to our God. We'll see this exact same thing next week when we zoom in on Nehemiah. He's going to pray on his own. But this is him recording corporate prayers, prayers of the people. Hear, O our God, we prayed. Opposition evidently drove them towards God, not away from God. And that's what spiritually mature people and small groups and ministry teams and churches do. When things get sideways, they pray. When opposition arises, they pray. When there's a need, they pray. When someone drops a ball, they pray. That's the initial response. Some of you um, may know that Back in 2020, we had um, a former contract employee of the church that embezzled some money from us. I was so proud of our people because um, the first time that we had a member meeting under legal advisement, we, we had this member meeting and made sure all our T's were crossed and our I's were dotted. The very first time we pulled the covenant membership of the church together and we started talking about the things we were learning, we prayed. And we prayed not only for us, but for her. I was so proud of our people who raised their hand in the meeting and said, how can we pray for the person who has robbed us? That's spiritual maturity. That's the way the people of God ought to respond. When they encounter opposition while doing the work of God, does it not make sense that the first initial response should be to talk to God? Hey, we're your people. We're doing your work. Something's happened. Let's talk. We respond to opposition by being prayerful. Second, we respond by being prudent. Respond by being prudent. Remember, we just read there were people from all these surrounding towns and areas who were planning to attack Jerusalem. And somehow or another, the word of their plans got back to the people. The people are shook, understandably. They don't have a wall. That's why they're there. <laughs> the wall was the primary defensive measure for the people. It's understandable that they're freaking out. And they go to Nehemiah and they say, we, we got to stop this. They prayed and they made prudent adjustments to their plans and their activities, they adjusted to the new reality. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 4. They've already prayed. And then Nehemiah says, So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember, the Lord, who is great and awesome, will fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. They didn't pray and then sit back idly waiting to be slaughtered as if they were going to challenge God to see whether or not he was really going to protect them. They prayed and sent people to stand guard. They prayed and they were prudent. God knows the future perfectly. You and I do not. 
And so we pray and we ask God to give us wisdom and insight to make plans. But if something happens, then we respond with prudent adjustments to those plans. Because we didn't have perfect insight into what to do. God wasn't cut off guard, caught off guard, but sometimes we will be. And so when something happens, we pray and then we make prudent adjustments. And watch this, it's not coming from a place of fear. There's no fear in Nehemiah in verse 14. It's not a lack of faith. Well, that was Josh. <laughs> Josh leaned against the dimmer. <laughs> then he made a prudent adjustment, and he got off the wall, and he turned it back on. It's the best illustration we've had in the whole sermon. It's so good. Right? <laughs> so look, God's given you a brain to think and to analyze and to plan and to make adjustments, not, and bless their hearts, I know what they mean, not to let go and let God. Like He gave us wisdom to act. And I know what people mean by that, but Matthew 10, 16, Jesus says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep into the midst of wolves to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So when wolves prowl around, we respond by being prudent, not by foolishly assuming that God's got it and we can just stay on cruise control and test his resolve. That's foolishness. We respond. And it's not a lack of faith. It's not fear. It's the way that God's wired us to be. The third way that we respond is related to that. We respond by being flexible. Prudent and flexible. What happens if you read down through verses 15 to 23, you'll see that they make a whole bunch of adjustments to what it is that they're doing before they learned of these threats. Right? Verse 15 says... When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. So the guards that they had set in verse 13 were evidently an effective deterrent to the, the threat that was the attack that was imminent was rebuffed. It, it didn't happen. So did they just go back to doing things how they'd been done before? Well, God won the victory. We can just get back. No. They were flexible, and they made adjustments to the plan, verses 16 and 17. From that day on, half my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail, and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored to work with one hand and held his weapon in the other. Down in verses 22 and 23. I also said to the people at the time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. We're flexible. We cannot be so committed to plan A that it becomes the mission. Churches have to guard against this. Because what happens over time, if we are not careful, is that you get to a place where the what is more important than the why. 
When plan A becomes the mission, we got to keep doing it this way. Now, we haven't had to struggle with this yet at King's Cross, but we're young. We're only six years old, so we'll have to guard against it in the next hard season. And you know there will be another hard season, right? There's always another hard season. It's not like, woo, we got through that. No, like another hard season's coming. This is true in your life, and it's true in the life of the church. So what churches have to do and what King's Cross will have to do is we have to make sure that we're not so committed to how we pursue, pursue the mission that we completely lose sight of the mission. You tracking with me? If you're new, let me just be very, very clear. Our mission at King's Cross is to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. That's our mission. We do that in three primary ways. By growing in the gospel, staying connected in community, and living on mission. That's our goal. So I'll just use one example. Worship services are one of the ways that we think is primary for you to grow in the gospel. But just to use that as an example, we're flexible on what Sunday morning worship looks like. We didn't have a full band up here this morning, right? Yeah, okay. I just want to be sure it wasn't just me. (laughs) We still worshiped? Yes? Well, that's flexible because we're not so locked in like, well, we don't have nine people. Can't have worship. Uh, of course we can. We could do it if, if I came in this morning and Jacob and Teresa had blown a tire out and neither one of them could have gotten here, we would have still worshiped. It wouldn't have been as good, but we'd have done it. Right? We would have been flexible. So here's my point. Like whether, whether it's in response to changing opportunities or to new circumstances, or yes, even to opposition to the work of God, the people of God respond by being flexible. One more. We respond by being steadfast. By being steadfast. I told you there's this ongoing economic exploitation of the people. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, Nehemiah calls it out. In 5, 6 through 11, the guilty parties pledge to follow his lead in verse 12. And Nehemiah records this in verse 13. And the imagery here of what he's doing is a, is a biblical cultural imagery. I think it's self-explanatory. He says, I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from this house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. So back in Nehemiah 4, 6, he said, The people had a mind to do the work. And here he says, And now they've done as they promised. They know God has called them to the work. They've got a mind to do it, but opposition has arisen from the outside, well-intended, but quite frankly, discouraging opposition has arisen from the inside, and even some of their own leaders are exploiting them for their own gain, but they are not deterred from the work. They are steadfast in it. We are going to do this. And I think sometimes it's important for us to remember 
that a disengaged Christian or a lukewarm church or a half-hearted ministry team is just as useful to Satan as an angry atheist. He does not have to get us to renounce our faith. He just needs us to stop pursuing the mission of God. He is just as satisfied if you will just not share the gospel. His purposes can be served just fine if you are scared and discouraged or if we will turn and fight with each other over non-essential issues. He's fine with that. But when the people of God respond to opposition to the work of God with a steadfast resolve, when we cling to the promise of Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, then the miraculous happens. And we're going to get to the miraculous in Nehemiah in the weeks ahead. But for now, it's important for our hearts to be reminded that the people of God should expect opposition to the work of God. We should cling to the promise of Hebrews 10.23 to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we know that your, your promise to us, the promise of the gospel is not that we will go through life unopposed, but that you will be in the fight with us. I confess to you that that's hard sometimes for my heart. Sometimes I get tired. And I just want things to be easy for a while. But you have shown us again and again and again throughout all of history as we read it faithfully recorded in the scriptures, as we learn about it in the history of the church, as we experience it in our lives and in our church, we know that you have promised and you are faithful. But sometimes our minds and our hearts just need to be reminded. And so I pray that you would remind us of that this morning. Would you help us to respond faithfully, not in our flesh, not from a place of fear or of anxiety, but a place of steadfast resolve. Help us not to be foolish people, but to be prudent and flexible. Holy Spirit, would you pray for us even as our weak prayers and moments when we don't exactly know how to pray? Would you intercede for us that we might be a people who, when opposition comes, press into you, that we might be a church who is steadfastly linked arms with one another and with other churches who preach this same gospel. For your sake and for our good, in Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We hope that you were encouraged by the Word of God today. Take a moment to click the subscribe button on your screen, and you won't have to come searching for us next time. Until then, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.